You're listening to R&B's On The Verge podcast series, where we look at disruption through the lens of opportunity. My name is Willem van der Post, and this is the R&B On The Verge series, where we take a look at disruption, but through the lens of opportunity. And joining me today is Andreas Kambitsis, head of a technology company, as well as a data analytics specialist. Welcome, and let's get straight into it. You are an early adopter in all things energy exponentials. Is that right? Well, kind of, yeah. Uh, So uh, I was an early adopter of uh, electric cars. So uh, I bought one of the first BMW i3s, which is now, believe it or not, almost five years, um, and have stuck with that uh, since. Uh, At the same time, have a solar installation, and I was one of the first Tesla Powerwall uh, adopters when it was first introduced into the country, the Powerwall 1. Right. So obviously this is a thing that is now uh, top of mind and on the tips of tongues of all South Africans with where we are on our national power grid. So I think one of the most burning questions for any electric vehicle driver is, what do you do when the car is out of juice and there's load shedding? Yeah. Okay. So that's an interesting one. Like I'd worry about my fridge before I'd worry about my car when when it comes to load shedding. So... um, uh, I often make the joke, if there's load shedding and I'm driving, I'll, I'll end up uh, getting stuck on the side of the road. But, but obviously, that, that's not the case. Um, so uh, I charge overnight, typically, or I charge at the office. Uh, load shedding is just not an issue. Um, it's, if it was for longer periods, maybe it would be. But for the duration that load shedding is on, it's not a problem. Um, and worst case, in my case, I do have solar. I, I produce enough generally during the day. I produce excess during the day, so I can, I can charge my car during the day. There's also, I think, a potentially a misconception as to how much energy an electric car consumes. So if I look at um, how much energy my car takes to charge, that's less than 10% of my household consumption, right? So it's, it's actually a small fraction of my total energy. And that's why if, if um, there's large-scale adoption of electric cars, in relation to the household energy that we're consuming today, it's not a massive increment uh, on that. So I just, this may be a little bit controversial, but let's just talk me through this. We're talking about electric vehicles as if they are uh, good for the environment, but somewhere that power has got to be generated. And truly that's the part that the environment doesn't like. So is mass adoption not equally bad or worse than combustion engines? Okay, so, so that's, that's often the argument posed that says, okay, well, you're just shifting the problem from the exhaust pipe to, uh, you know, to the power plant. So in South Africa, there's some element of truth to that in the sense that our CO2 uh, emissions per kilowatt hour of electricity produced is in kind of in the, I think, top uh, worst 15% of the world. So for South Africa, you are moving the problem uh, from... The, the tailpipe of, of the car to, to, the power, to, to, to the power plant because our energy production is very coal-based and is not clean at all. It doesn't hold true for most other countries, so uh, th- that needs to be considered, point one, as far as today is concerned. The other thing, though, as in in my case, I've got solar panels, so I'm producing enough green power to more than offset what my car is consuming, right? So uh, I've, I've netted that off, and, and so that, that's not an issue. And it's also super important to consider that that's where things are today. Mm-hmm. Generally, not, not generally, it, it is the case that uh, power production within countries is getting greener and greener and greener because of regulation, because of economic forcing functions, and so on and so forth. So you have to 
look at it over the long term, right? So power, uh, electricity production is becoming greener and more sustainable. And conversely, you want uh, transportation to become greener on, on sustainable energy. So you have to solve both. You can't solve both simultaneously at the same time. One's going to move forward before the other. And it just so happens in South Africa right now, you know, I can get a green car and add solar and therefore, you know, I'm progressing it forward in that respect. How much of a difference does it make for, I want to almost call them retail consumers, you and I, individuals in other words, to shift to green? Uh, if my understanding is that it's this, it's the, it's industry that's really the bulk user of electricity. You think mining operations, smelters, that sort of thing. Yeah. Look. So, um, in other words, can we make a dent if 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 all of us do this as individuals? Is it big enough? Uh, it it's significant as individuals. Uh, transportation, uh, personal transportation, is significant. Obviously, there's commercial transportation, etc. Um, so so it. it it will make some dent for sure. It's not going to be enough. But the way to also think about it is um, th there's a snowball effect, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm an early adopter of an electric car. The economics may, you know, I'm paying a premium, but at the same time, um, I'm creating demand for electric cars. That money reinforces the idea that electric cars can be, uh, you know, for every sell there's there's executives saying okay maybe this can work and so they're spending more in r d mm -hmm. so it, it it's a snowball effect right and uh you've got to start somewhere you start with what you think you can influence most and the more consumers uh move and put their money behind uh you know greener products whether it's cars or, or it, it that, that has a cascading effect and i think that's the way to think about it so you mentioned long-term views i i like to to zoom into sort of two areas, we'll see where it goes. The first is the now of EV as an electric vehicle and where that's progressing. And then we'll come back to solar installations on homes because I think that's a topical thing for all South Africans. But EV really is the preamble to autonomous, isn't it? Well, it's interesting that the two concepts get conflated because they don't have to be. I mean, EVs and it's an electric vehicle um, and then there's autonomous. I think the reason why they get conflated is largely because of Tesla because Tesla is pioneering EV, and in many respects is pioneering autonomous driving, right? So, so there is um, the, the conflation of the two concepts from that perspective, as in, as in uh, represented by Tesla. But what's interesting is this, and, and this is where there's a fundamental coupling between the two concepts. If we have fully autonomous cars and um, transportation moves to what they call mobility as a service, and so, you take Uber and, and you make Ubers completely autonomous, the cost will go down significantly, perhaps a factor of 10 per kilometer. And what happens then is uh, you, you've got vehicles that um, can drive around all the time, right? So at the moment, cars, you know, your car has probably a 4% utilization. And any, you drive it to work, you park yeah, it, you do it the it. same so, in reverse. So, you know, 96% of the time of the hours, it's, it's sitting idle. And any industry that has 96% of its assets sitting idle is, is in some respects open to disruption, right? There's massive inefficiency there. So the big uh, change and, and, and step function and benefit with autonomous cars is you can, you can have these vehicles running around at a 80, 90% utilization. And that radically changes the economics. But now what's interesting is if you're going to have a vehicle that's going to have an 80, 90% utilization driving around all the time, 
maintenance is an issue, mm. cost of ownership is an issue. Depreciation goes Dep through the roof. Yeah. And, and that's where electric comes in, because with electric, maintenance becomes pretty much a non-issue. At the moment, I have to service my car every two years, and even then, they just check the brake fluid, right? So, so, so maintenance is a non-issue. Cost of maintenance is a non-issue. So, so, and and you, you know, Tesla's looking at cars that can do a million miles, right? And it, it's very much the case, therefore, that um, that's why EV and autonomous vehicles and this mobility as a service come together in a very uh, you know, in, in a wonderful way. So we talk about disruption, and then I'm thinking if I'm not stopping to put fuel into a vehicle because I'm feeding it off the solar grid either at home or at enterprise where it's gone green, what do we do with all the jobs around petrol attendance? It's now not maybe the opportunity to start rethinking education services to help these individuals reposition themselves to take economic participation down the line. Because we're going to be driving around the petrol stations, right? We're not going to drive through them anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that that whole industry can be disrupted. It will be gradualish. I don't think it's going to be an overnight thing. Um, but those are things that certainly government needs to think about. It's the petrol attendance. It's also that real estate. You know, that real estate can be put to better use uh, as well. So, um, Actually, I thought of the real estate. Now, just to interject quickly. Uh, that 96% lockdown comment of yours, mm. those cars are locked down in prime real estate areas, typically in CBDs. 100%, right? So so if you consider, and a lot of people are already moving this way just through the advent of Uber, not owning cars, right? But now all of a sudden you've got a garage that you can repurpose and it can add value to your home. These massive uh, parking lots that are you know, prime real estate can also be repurposed. Mm, so, turn them into so, schools. Absolutely. The real estate uh, industry can be radically influenced because, uh, you know, it depends who you speak to, but one, one, um, we could achieve the mobility, the transportation that we require with a fleet of vehicles that's 80% smaller than what we have now, right? So, so you can as reduce. in the volume of the vehicles. Yes, yeah, the yeah, volume in of fleet. vehicles exactly in fleet. So we can have eighty percent. So what? What is it? It's like, I think a hundred million vehicles around the world. Uh, no, sorry, two billion. A hundred get sold. hundred million get sold every year. But those two billion vehicles, we can achieve the same level of transportation with um, eighty percent fewer vehicles. And so, as you say, it opens. And and those vehicles, for the most part, the fewer number will be on the road. So, so you don't need this, this massive real estate for parking. I imagine that would also be a great societal thing in terms of getting rid of things like traffic congestion, which I think is something that chips away at your psyche over a yeah. long period of time, creates aggression. That's an interesting one, right? Um, it, it creates aggression because you are driving and you're interacting with the traffic. I, I don't know if traffic uh, congestion will get any better. It, one could make a case that it will get worse. The reason being is because you can do other things in the vehicle now if it's autonomous, right? Um, and that's the first thing. And the second thing is the cost of transport's a lot cheaper, so it's accessible to so many people, right? So the combination of those two things will create a lot of demand for people being on the road mm -hmm. all, all the time, being you know being transported. So so traffic may not get better, right? And that's where it's interesting where. Um, uh, you know, Elon Musk is looking at alternatives uh, through the boring company of creating 3D roads, right? Uh, look at digging tunnels underground to create uh, multi-layered road systems. Because the fundamental problem there is we live in a 3D world where we have buildings that grow vertically. And so, so the density is increasing based on, on that. 
but our road system's 2D. Yes. So, so it, it's hard to work around that. The only way to do that is to create a 3D road system that can scale in accordance to our population density. So why don't we flip that upside down? I mean, why is it going underground? Are passenger drones that do it vertically where no infrastructure is required not a better solution here? It's, it's an interesting one. Um, and there is interesting progress, I think, being made on the uh, kind of, uh, you know, flying, flying cars. They are prone to weather. That, that is an issue. They are loud. They are working on the noise factor. There is a safety problem. So one can make the case that if you go underground, you're immune to noise and to uh, weather conditions, and you just can have far more consistency hmm. in, in that respect. Yeah, more CapEx also, I suppose, but I hear you on how more nascent... More CapEx, but, but uh, the boring company, which is the, uh, uh, I suppose, ironic name... That, he has that a knack for names. Company, yes, um, is working hard at minimizing the, uh, or, or increasing the capital efficiency of, of boring tunnels. <laughs> Okay, now, as an, as an analytics expert, uh, I, we didn't prep you for this question, but uh, if a consumer wanted to switch to electric today, yes. what kind of cost are we looking at? Because the cars are expensive, aren't they? And I've got to if somehow mm. find charging points if I don't have my home on solar. Yeah. Well, you don't need your home on solar to charge at home. I think or that, that, that's the first thing to, to consider. And, I, and I'll talk about charging now and now, but let, let me try and address your, your cost question. I think the unfortunate thing is in South Africa, we've got really limited choice insofar as electric vehicles are concerned, right? Um, there's fundamentally three choices. There's the BMW i3, the Nissan Leaf, and the Jaguar I-Pace. And of all those, the Nissan Leaf is probably the most affordable, uh, followed by the BMW i3, and then, and then the Jaguar is obviously very expensive premium. Other parts of the world, especially in the US and Europe, there, there's a lot more choice, right? And the premium there, I think we're at a point where you're not necessarily paying a premium for an electric car if you're looking for a mid-sized car. So if you're looking for a BMW 3 Series or something like that, you can get an electric car equivalent without really paying a premium. There might be a small premium in the purchase price, but you'll more than offset that through the uh, fuel savings that, that you'll get there because charging costs about a fifth of what uh, your fuel bill will cost you. So if you're spending, let's say, 2,000 Rand a month on fuel, you'll be spending three to 400 Rand a month on electricity to cover the same distance. Right. Right. So, so in this year, we're at the point where I'd say more or less for a mid-sized vehicle, there's cost parity in uh, most of the developed markets in terms of finding an electric equivalent. And of course, as more and more people adopt green, which is typically renewable and therefore solar, the unit cost starts to decrease as well. So in time, this should really be a cost-efficient alternative. Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing behind solar and batteries and electric cars is that it's a technology, and technology costs uh, go down every year, right? We've seen it with phones. It's, it's, it's just a constant trend. So we, we, we're very close to the point where it will be cheaper to buy an electric car. And then all these debates go away because it yes. becomes a no-brainer. My, my, whether I want to be greener or not, well, whatever my philosophy, or it, it doesn't matter. I'm going to act rationally and go for for. Just makes cheaper. economic yeah. sense. So and the economic forcing function is, is going to kick in. And that's already happening um, depending where you are in the world and what the cost of electricity is. But it's, it's, it is happening with renewables, right? Uh, the cost of solar panels and, and also storage now has been going down uh, progressively every year, anything between 5 and 20%, depending again on what you look at. So we're at a point where, uh, you, you know, green uh, solar and, and storage 
is is more is more cost effective as a new installation than uh, traditional uh, sources of power. And I mean, let's just switch gears now to to that generation of power. Yeah, it is my understanding that we face a dilemma of grid defection, increasing the cost of your state-owned enterprise provider of electricity because it still has the same amount of overheads and if there are fewer users of its product yeah. it naturally pushes up the the unit cost yeah so it's kind of no one defect or everyone defect yeah. yeah what does it take to defect yeah yeah so that's an interesting one i think they call that the death spiral right which as you say the um demand decreases uh unit uh fixed cost remain the same unit cost uh goes up which in turn incentivizes individuals and companies enterprises to move to to alternatives right um so your question is what what does it take to defect from 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 what from the grid and let's just also disaggregate this part of the conversation where we talk about an individual going off grid and then an enterprise going off grid yes let's start with individual because i think that touches most people today yeah so so i think the interesting thing there is uh okay there's there's a few ways to think about that the first thing is to go completely off-grid is super expensive because um, you need a lot of storage to do that. And the reason you need storage is, just so, just for, for the audience to, to kind of clarify, is you put in solar. Putting in solar is uh, very cost-effective. The, the, it's a daytime fact, solution, right? But it's a daytime solution. That's the point. So if you can use that solar energy that's produced at the time that it's produced, uh, the, the solar panels pay for themselves within months, right? So, so that's that's kind of no-brainer. The problem is, as you say, that energy only gets produced during the day, and there's only so much as a household that you consume during the day. Most of the consumption happens, um, you, you know, early morning, evening, uh, at at nighttime. So that puts a cap on how much usable solar you can you can implement during the day. So that's when you need to introduce storage. So you can harvest daytime uh, electricity and use that at night. That's where it gets then a, a bit more expensive. Uh, Why is that? Is that because the batteries themselves? The, the batteries themselves are, are still relatively expensive, right? Uh, High-quality lithium-ion batteries are, are, are relatively expensive. But again, in certain countries in the world where electricity is even more expensive than it is here, um, it, it still makes economic sense to, to to do that, to bring in storage. Quick interjection. Sure. Where are we on the scale of uh, expensiveness or our cost of electricity it's relative a, to the world? It's a good question. Like, I, I'm not that close to the numbers as of, as of late, but um, uh, more or less about, I'd say in 2008, we were in the bottom five countries, more or less, in the cheapest five, right? Uh, we're above midway at the moment. I, I'd say maybe we're in the 75th percentile, right? Or, you, you know, I suppose the th- I, I'd, I'd guesstimate 30th percentile most expensive Right. Uh, and, yeah. and, and is that because other countries have gotten onto renewables as a national supply? Um, I, I think they've just had more sustainable ways of securing the supply. And we, we had the challenge where we underinvested and uh, we needed to play a lot of catch up. And that necessitated um, aggressive price increases over the last 10 years, right? Okay. We'll get back to that part. Let's just quickly finish our thought here on sure. I've got a solar that gives me yeah. battery uh, power during the day. Yeah. I need to consume at night. Therefore, I need to yeah. park it somewhere so yeah. I have batteries. The real solution there, and that's where it's synergistic with the um, uh, utility providers, is if you could feed that back into the grid, right? So I, as an individual, am willing to put in solar. Uh, I'll use some of that. Uh, and then if I could feed excess solar production back into the grid it benefits the utility right and they could pay me for that 
uh, at a certain rate. It doesn't have to be the full rate at which I buy them, but I can still get some benefit and justify an ROI. And that becomes uh, a very effective way for utilities to uh, get extra production uh, at low cost, actually. Mm. Someone and else's cost, in fact. Someone else's cost, exactly. Someone else is laying out the capital. And, and countries that uh, pursue that approach, uh, you, you know, have been quite successful. I mean, the irony is, so, so Australia's done a lot of that. Uh, and the irony there is that it, it's almost gone too far. There's too much solar, rooftop solar production feeding into the grid to the point where they're getting to a stage where there's grid instability. And without a rigorous enough system to control the feedback into the grid, they may have to instate load shedding for the complete different reason that we have load shedding, which is where they have too much power being fed into the, the grid in an uncontrolled way. I don't think it's happening yet, but, but it has been discussed as a potential risk. Wow, what a first world problem to have. It's yeah. too much solar yeah. being produced. Same, One would think export. Term, completely different reason, right? It's quite, quite ironic. So why does that happen? Did, did an Australian approach involve things like incentive from government, tax breaks, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. so, so the, the key thing is to allow what they call feed-in tariffs, right? A feed-in tariff is um, you, there's a tariff that uh, dictates how much money you can earn if you're feeding into the grid which is something we don't really have here um, uh, in, in any substantive way. I understand there's one or two municipalities that, that, that pay some amount, but, but by and large, you, you, you're not actually allowed to feed into the grid, and uh, you certainly don't get paid for it. It seems to me like there's a massive opportunity here for financial institutions to offer refinancing on home equity to be able for the consumer to afford yeah. the installation of this infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a very, very good point. And for example, um, uh, we, uh, our neighbors uh, installing a, or is planning on installing a backup generator and um, is going to the effort uh, to ensure that it's a gas generator, which is a bit more environmentally friendly, as well as a quiet generator, yes. which actually results in quite a high capital cost. And if you do the maths, you could uh, get a solar system with, with a battery that would pay for itself, you know, in about seven, eight years. But obviously, it requires more of a capital outlay. Now, if uh, it, if um, financial institutions made it easy, they could uh, alleviate the upfront capital cost and compensate for that through an annuity payment that uh, you can essentially fund through the your electricity savings every year. So let's talk about that because I've heard two schools of thought here. The first is the payback period to which you've referred i.e. the difference between my new solar cost of generating the power and the old state utility cost. Yeah. And that the capital outlay divided by that delta gives me my payback period. Mm. But that's presupposing that the state-owned enterprise is around to provide power and that you don't have load shedding. In other words, it's a cheaper source. Aren't we, in South African's context, more in the story of, I need power consistency? Yeah, so, so it's not about the payback period. It's about the fact that I need power. Correct. So, so that's why even if your payback period's 15 years, um, you're willing to pay a premium for, uh, for the backup capability, right? So, so that's where it, it makes sense. You know, and then people are doing that already. They're they choosing to, uh, you know, the Tesla Powerwall 2 has just been launched in the country. So the, the, they are thinking of putting solar, which, uh, solar panels, which, as we said, makes economic sense anyway. But... The first port of call is to actually install a Powerwall battery 
for backup reasons mm. where you're not getting any return on investment on that per se. You're just getting backup power. Reliable power. Reliable power. And then they'll add solar, which actually starts reducing their utility bill uh, okay. at that point. So now I need, uh, I need panels or wind or a generator. Yeah. I need an inverter to let the electricity talk the same language as what my house uses. Correct. And then I need storage, which is the batteries. Yes. How much does all of this set me back today? Uh, well, it, I think it very much depends on uh, the size of your house and your, you, you know, your electricity consumption, etc. And and so, um, if if you think of a solution that, as you say, there's three components: the solar panels, the inverter, and the the, the battery storage. I'd say it's anything between one hundred and forty thousand to two hundred fifty thousand rand. Uh, you, you know, depending on... It's on quite a big household. swing. Is that the difference between running just my toaster and also putting my geysers yeah, on? And, and size of your house, actually, right? So you're talking about a two-bedroom house, a, a five-bedroom house. Um, Hang on. No, size no, of house or size of household? Size of household. So right? then the say, yeah, individuals, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, do you have a pool pump? Do you, you know, how many lights do you have? How many fridges do you have? Like there's certain core... You, you know, you, you typically only want your core appliances on backup. Um, so you don't worry too much about geezers or, or things like that, uh, geezers, ovens, and pool pump. But everything else you'd put on on, on backup. Um, I think I, th- I personally think that argument's going to sound different than winter. You definitely want the geezers on as well. But they're they're quite yeah. uh, intense on power consumption, aren't they? They're, they're very intense, and and there a solar geezer is is definitely a no brainer. Like one of your uh, ROIs that you can uh, very high ROIs or quick wins is to put in a solar geezer. Right, that's the first thing that you should do actually or, or a heat pump i've also heard as well so a heat pump um coupled with uh with the photovoltaic uh, electricity generation is is definitely a good option let's just quickly switch to enterprise mm. so of late there's been an announcement that government is seriously considering the ability of enterprise to generate its own power yeah is that happening where are we with that my understanding is it is happening. I haven't been too close to it. I was at the mining in Daba uh, a couple of days ago. But from what I understand is they are making it or have made it easy for uh, enterprises to generate their own power. We do a lot of work with mining companies, and they're ready to invest significantly in relatively large uh, photovoltaic installations that will um, reduce the burden on the grid significantly. So, uh, you, you know, that's that's a massively positive move, to be honest. We almost need a bit of enterprise-level defection to alleviate the strain on the grid. Absolutely. Absolutely. Andreas, fascinating talking to you. I think an uh, area that is certainly heating up, specifically in South Africa. Wonderful to have you with me. Thanks for joining me. Likewise. Thank you very much. You've been listening to R&B's On The Verge podcast series. For more solutionist thinking, visit the R&B website.